Support for Pensions and Investments podcasts comes from Prudential Retirement. Welcome to Pensions and Investments Picking Up the Pieces podcast. On November 11th, P&I brought together five leading investment experts and thinkers to discuss how U.S. capital markets and then global markets succumbed to the credit crisis that's already entering its second year and has pulled economies around the world into recession. This high-level group not only talked about what lessons history already had to offer before the crisis hit, but also what new lessons are being taught and whether investors are even in a learning mood. Participating in the Picking Up the Pieces roundtable were Peter L. Bernstein, president of Peter L. Bernstein, Inc. in New York, Cliff Asnes, managing principal of AQR Capital Management in Greenwich, Connecticut, Bennett Golub, Vice Chairman of BlackRock, Inc., in New York. Leslie Rawl, President of Capital Market Risk Advisors in New York. And Harrison Hong, the John H. Scully 66 Professor in Finance at Princeton University in Princeton, New Jersey. Joel Chernoff, Executive Editor, moderated the discussion, which was held at PNI's New York offices. Well, thanks, for everyone, for coming. The government is pumping $150 billion into AIG, If it weren't for the size of the government's $700 billion bailout plan, that would sound like a huge amount of money. Well, it is. And much of AIG's hemorrhaging comes from writing thousands of credit default swaps on esoteric vehicles such as synthetic CDOs. When AIG officials wrote those swaps, did they have any idea of how much risk AIG was taking on? If they didn't know, how could their investors know? How could they manage their risks? No matter how fancy a risk measurement tool investors used, how could they understand their risks if the data were wrong? Then, of course, there are investors who ignore the risks, even if the obvious is staring them in the face. P&I has now found that some 401k plan participants are upping their holdings in employer stock, sometimes because they believe their own company is more of a defensive play, but sometimes because they have more faith in their own employer than the stock market as a whole. Better the devil they know than the devil they don't. Today, we're going to look at a number of risk management issues facing institutional investors. How has the investment landscape changed for them since the credit crisis erupted 15 months ago? What risks have become more important? What challenges are before them? Let's talk a couple minutes about hedge funds specifically. Uh, I'm in a lot of trouble now. Yeah, here we go, Cliff. (laughs) Current fee structures make it easy for hedge funds to rake in cash in good times and close-up shop in bad times. Will institutional investors address this asymmetry, and if so, how? First of all, yes. Um, And I have been talking about this for about three, four years. I've written some articles. I wrote an article for the uh, 25th anniversary of the Journal of Portfolio Management, which was two, three years ago, before bad times ever hit, um, where what I said was in prior, before there were more institutional investors in hedge funds, when it was wealthy individuals and Swiss banks and collectively, wealthy individuals who made their money from something other than investing are, are approximately the worst investments investors on earth. Actually, worse are investment bankers because they have the word investment in their title. Therefore, they think they know something about investing, but that's just editorializing. Um, I said um, in prior times when we'd hit rough patches for hedge funds and markets in general, those investors would leave. They, they'd leave in mass. I am very hopeful, and even as a hedge fund manager, I'll be on the wrong end of this, but I'm very hopeful that next time we hit a problem, this was before we had any problem, 
that these institutional investors will it was a, it was a seller's market for so many years in hedge funds. I used to joke people would say institutions are coming to hedge funds therefore fees are coming down. It was the world's first case of an upward sloping demand curve of 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 you know everyone wants this therefore the price is going to come down. That's backwards. Just because they're cognizant of fees doesn't make the price come down. So I was very optimistic that when the pessimistic scenario hit, these investors wouldn't flee. They'd use it as a chance to renegotiate terms. So I think hedge fund fees are coming down. That's fairly, I've thought that for years, and it's finally starting to happen. Again, this is not what I'm rooting for. Um, I, I will admit I'm on the wrong side of this, but being part of a healthier industry at a fairer fee is probably a better present value than being part of an industry that has an exaggerated fee that can't last. So I, pro- I, I really should be rooting for this. I think they're coming down. Um, I think certain products from, um, I, I'm not a huge fan of all the hedge fund replication products out there, but they're starting to get in the right direction of can we deliver some aspects of this cheaper. I think they can be done smarter, and I would go into a commercial too much if I started talking about it, but I do think some of those products are going to force fees down themselves. And when you talk about the asymmetry, I don't think it's going to go this far. The asymmetry is we take 20% of the upside, and when we lose, we don't lose money. I don't think a lot of hedge funds are going to exist that give back 20% of the money. Um, one thing I could see is performance fees over, over longer periods. Um, that same investor, by the way, I, I mentioned earlier, was the only one who took us up on a lower fee for a three-year lockup. We also agreed to take the performance fee at the end of the three years. Nothing between now and then. Three years doesn't fix the problem. But it takes away at least a fair chunk of the optionality. Um, and the longer, the better. So things like that. And finally, I think the, the, the biggest crime in hedge fund fees is not necessarily the asymmetry. A performance fee is allowed. It's just a negotiated fee. It's that hedge funds average long so much. So that performance fee, it, remember, uh, by the way, let's all use our imaginations and imagine there's a positive equity risk premium. There used to be and there will be again. If you have that fee, you're taking 20% of the equity risk premium just for showing up if you're net, if you're net long more than you're net short. If you average long, it's just cheating, to, to put it no other way. And I think institutions are going to, especially uh, given the performance, and I'm not proud of our own in this. I think we've just gotten it wrong as opposed to being passively net wrong, uh, passively net long, which is different. I, I consider that a, v, a pretty big sin, but a venal, not a cardinal sin. I consider cheating the structure a cardinal sin. Uh, but I really hope investors um, use their market power, because it will be a buyer's, not a seller's market for a while, not necessarily to flee, but to get terms that look like um, perhaps they'll have to even give up longer lockups, but fees at the end of those lockups so they're short, less short the optionality, and an acknowledgement either of, of either, this is a dreaded word for hedge funds, but a benchmark uh, of some long-only assets that's equivalent to the average long-only of the manager, or forcing their managers to be more, quote, market neutral, not allow them to just ride the markets up and down. Um, so I, again, I never give the short answer. The short answer is yes. Um, fees are going to come down. Fee structures are going to come down. Um, but I think I'm hopeful that investors will do it in a smart way. It's more important to, strain, to change the structure of fees than the level of fees. If you change the structure, the level will come down because some of that structure is unfairly large fees. I mean, the, the only other thing I would add to, to what Cliff said is that, is that these fees are also um, dependent upon mark-to-markets, and those mark-to-markets issue, may yes. or may not have any bearing to reality. And you know, you for might, some funds, you, it you, varies a lot. Yeah, well, equity, uh, long, short, don't have that issue. But any fixed I'm thinking in the broader, broader universe. Yeah. 
um, and, and that can create, uh, obviously, incentive problems. And, and, and we have seen um, situations where uh, things have not been marked uh, the, way they, the way they should be. Um, so surprise, surprise. A, one of the ways they you tend can, to be you, marked you, down you slowly. Can, is the issue. You can you, you can combat both that issue as well as an incentive issue is you know by the you know, using something akin to like a private equity structure, and we've actually created some funds you know based on you know you're trying to catch a falling knife and you're handling it really bloody, but you know if you really do make fifteen percent cash on cash over the the cycle, that's a good deal for the investor. That's what they signed up for. So you you, you can address sort of you know particularly if you have opaque pricing. Uh, as well as creating an alignment. Also, it also helps to have an alignment if, if the uh, investment managers themselves have money in the fund uh, and that money has to stay there. This is a very akin, I think, to, to my t a longer lockups, performance fees at the end, just taken to its more logical conclusion. Uh, I think they're very similar um, discussions. Get people to think of a longer-term ter time horizon on these things. And yeah, I mean, I completely agree with that because I think from a societal perspective, one of the things that you see coming out of this is there's a tendency because of the short-termism for people to push what is sort of like these disaster-type trades where, you know, you're basically selling, uh, uh, writing insurance on a market collapse. So every year you kind of get the fees, and then kind of afterwards uh, you're not around if the thing crashes to kind of pay, right? I think having a longer horizon is the bigger issue. I think also in terms of executive compensation also, uh, uh, at, at kind of the firm level is that by having a much longer horizon, like an average of five-year performance, I think that's going to naturally take down uh, some of this incentive to basically kind of write these kind of socially suboptimal uh, uh, type of insurance. Thanks. Ben, I'd like to return to a point that you had just touched on. How can you measure risk when you can't value the securities? Well, that's a very good question. I was hoping that I would be educated on that uh, at the panel. When <laughs> your name is next to it, it's kind of my kind of, kind of my job. Um, but um, you know, there there are a couple aspects uh, uh, to this. I mean, I mean, most recently, I mean, there there was an episode where um, I would say the great majority of money market funds in the United States had, had had broken the buck, except for the fact that there's a company uh, in the pricing service business that sends out the magical tape. Uh, uh, so I'm dating true. myself the, the electronic feed um, and, and, and lo and behold you didn't break the buck you did know that what they said that was uh, a 99.8 you couldn't get a bid on or if you couldn't get a bid it would be at 90 or 80 uh, but that was the process so, so you know uh, you don't exactly know what the risk is in some cases um, the, the valuation uh, you know, will, 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 will hide the risk um, the only thought in, in, in this that, that, that I have is that when you're dealing with situations where valuation in terms of market value, and, and you know, it used to be that market value was a price. Now we have kind of market value you know, over a long horizon, over a short horizon. What you could sell it A liquidation for. value if yeah. you got hit, you know, the repo man came tomorrow. Um, so suddenly, you know, even the concept of price has become sort of a dissertation as opposed to a number. Um, but I, but I, I think what you wind up having to do um, is you know focus on exposure variables rather than you know correlations and scenarios. In other words, if you see that you have this you know old-fashioned measures, um, you know how much you know do you have of industrials versus utilities? Uh, how much um, you know where are you in terms of the, the again, exposures as opposed to the, the factor exposures rather than 
the, uh, the, the how they might relate to statistically. That's one piece. Uh, and the other part is uh, where you have assets whose valuation is uncertain, um, making sure that the underlying fundamentals of them are, are, are strong. So we may not know uh, what the price is of a particular uh, security, but we, if, if we know the cash flows and we have confidence in the cash flows, then either at some point the market will become sane and will have a value, or alternatively the market won't become sane, but we will have the cash flow and we'll have the returns from the cash flow. Um, that's the only way I, I know how to do it. I think there's one other way that I've seen some people deal with this that I think it's not perfect, but it adds some value, and that is to look at the dispersion of prices. when you. So if you have three different prices that are totally different by different methodologies, you define the difference between where you carry it and half the dispersion or the worst, or depending on your style of management, as your risk. Um, that's a proxy. One thing Leslie said that resonated is um, how quickly after LTCM we went back to forgetting things. And I think even now, as ugly as things seem, people forget how quickly fear can turn back to greed. Um, it'll be probably slower now because it's, if anything, more severe. But it won't, it won't take as long as people think before, if in fact it turns, obviously you need things to get better, for people to start forgetting uh, again. I, w I would disagree. I think this you have memory, a bit of a longer-term perspective. This memory is going to linger on yeah. for a long time. It's, it's it feels a yes. lot worse than this. Yes, it could be years. Yes, it could be years. But I, years I, are not decades. I'm, I'm, yeah, I I'm, a, I'm more cynical than you, I, 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 I guess. I think it does And I'm not claiming on, it's a good thing, by the way. I think it does depend on how long the situation goes on and yeah. how prolonged it is and how bad. When people make um, comparisons to the Great Depression yeah. in terms of what we're dealing with, I'm saying psychologically we're not there yet no. because people are not But both out you and Peter are right. The Great Depression scarred at least a generation about equity. So if it goes much further than we are now, then I'm wrong. Then it will last for, for very long. It does and depend it how far it goes. It it's not just equities, it's uh, trust. Uh, I mean, the, the financial system cracked apart and the financial system depends on trust, and building that back up can't happen fast because you, well, you won't believe it if it's fast. You believe it only if it takes time. Counterparty risk has moved from the back office to the forefront of investors' concerns. Um, how is that going to affect, uh, for one thing, financially engineered products such as liability-driven investments and portable alpha? Uh, Harrison? I mean, I think... I think this is probably one of the other big um, things that come out of the crisis is that I think for a long time, I think as Peter had mentioned, we had sort of assumed that there was very little counterparty risk, right? And I think if you kind of look at most models of financial engineering uh, and kind of the volume of financial engineering you see, a lot of it a lot of it was premised on the fact that you didn't have to worry so much about this so that, you know, somebody doing a portable alpha strategy uh, could kind of do it on a bilateral basis. You could kind of engineer and get exactly the specific thing that you wanted. Now a lot of this stuff is going to have to move on to exchanges. Much more of it has to come on the clearing houses. So I think those guys would do pretty well. <coughs> um, but I think certainly the volume that you see as far as specific stuff is going to definitely be cut down. Is, 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 um, and, and I think that's the other big thing is that I think it's a good point that if kind of this, this kind of counterparty risk doesn't kind of go away, it would be very interesting to see kind of in the long run how much of an impact it has on kind of the, the volume of engineering that you see.
I also think that the Lehman bankruptcy has reminded everybody the counterparty risk goes way beyond your direct counterparty in an over-the-counter transaction and includes securities lending, the repo markets, and also includes who is the prime broker, is it an onshore or offshore <coughs> entity? As we know in the Lehman bankruptcy, there were differences as to which Lehman entity you dealt with. Um, issues that Ben and I have talked about at times, about closeout versus market quotes versus loss. How are your counterparty, if in the case of a counterparty default, at what price is that unwind going to be set? So I think that it has definitely moved to the forefront but I think most people still think about it more narrowly than it needs to be thought about. I mean, the intellectual abstraction that we need in financial engineering is this notion that you have, you know, collateral, and somehow that if you could either that they're in a great balance sheet or there's enough collateral, you don't have to worry and you sort of do your transaction well. We've kind of learned that it just doesn't work. You know, collateral does not neutralize the playing field. In fact, it's, you know, it, it can help. Uh, but it also can hurt because you can give collateral to someone who may not get it back. Um, so, so, so certainly the, um, and you know, unfortunately I speak from experience here. Um, so, 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 so the, 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 this notion of these the, the, these bilateral transactions, particularly long-lived ones, um, it's hard to imagine that 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 has much of a future uh, to it. And, and um, agreed. You know, I've been involved in. Um, and I, I resigned from it because I didn't didn't like it. Uh, there was a sort of counterparty working group um, discussion when there was an investment banking industry about two three months <laughs> before ago. Before they became commercial banks, um, and there were discussions about you know the sort of the, the broker dealers were going to set up some sort of clearing corporation that was you know, highly skewed um, to the interests of the broker dealer community, and you know it, it was uh, events have shown that to be that they were living in denial. Um, but you do need to have now bona fide um, uh, <coughs> counterparts. One of the interesting things, um, I, I, I have a colleague who is sort of the equity risk manager, and he, he, he lives in London, and he'd come over to visit and said, you guys are so demoralized, and in London at the time they were still in, in, in good moods. And, and, and they've caught the, up. The, 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 well, they've caught up in terms of valuation, but, but it, 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 the equity markets, when times are bad, volumes tend to go up. Yeah. Bond markets, times are bad, volumes go that's down. There's something very, very I mean, that's got to tell you something, that having a transparent price and exchange and, and a counterparty can do, that's worth a real lot. And, and, I, and I think that, you know, it's this, whatever the historical reasons be, be what they are, there's information technology today, the, 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 the financial mechanics of the system you know, need and should be changed. And if they were, things would work a lot better because for all the headaches you have in the equity markets in terms of the values are down, the bonds dwarf it. You actually can sell them. Yes, you'll have a little bit, you'll have yeah. some market impact, but let me tell you, that's a whole lot different than, you know, gee, it's going to go down, you know, a couple of percent versus no bid. Yeah. And they mean no bid. Hi, my name is Chris Battaglia, publisher of Pensions and Investments, the international newspaper of money management. Thanks for listening. For a complete list of PI podcasts, please go to www.pionline.com/podcast or subscribe online at iTunes.